This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, Brad, let's get into it. What have you been doing recently? Uh, just first of all, I've just been chugging away at this gift guide that's coming to Slash Film next week. And so everybody out there better appreciate this because this is a taxing, tedious affair of putting putting all this stuff together for you to waste your money on. So I hope... <laughs> yeah, you did this last year. You put together this massive, like, multi-part gift guide. So, I mean, it is the holiday season. Uh, you know, we're, we're getting close to, to Christmas and all that. So if you're looking for ideas, Brad's got you covered. So stay tuned to Slash Film next week. Yeah, it'll start hitting on uh, on Monday, the week of Thanksgiving, starting with uh, the movies and TV installment. And there is plenty in there. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So aside from, you know, combing every corner of the internet that you can find for good deals and all that kind of stuff, what else have you been up to recently? Uh, so I went to Chicago not too long ago to try out this thing called Sandbox VR. Uh, and the best way to describe it basically is it's like if you if you amplified like the normal VR experience that you can have at home with like the uh, the the Quest headset or you know PlayStation VR with whatever your VR headset of choices mm-hmm. and and kind of brought it a little bit closer to the Oasis from Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there there's some locations around the country and there's there's one in Chicago and they reached out to me to try it because they uh, recently launched a new Squid Game experience. Uh, in addition to the normal uh, other games that they have, and so um, you still get a headset in the uh, when you go to do this experience, but you also get uh, devices strapped onto your wrists and your ankles, and then depending on like which version of the game you're playing, you also get your choice of weapons. The Squid Game one does not have weapons because the way the Squid Game one plays out is it's basically like you're part of the Squid Game and you're doing a series of challenges where you're playing against other people in, in a group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it all involves like just, you know, where you are in, in, in relation to the room. And they put you in a big room that is um, 
gosh, I'm not very good with like doing off the cuff measurements off the top of my head, but I would, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's like, a, it's a, the size of like a pretty big bedroom basically. Um, and you're, you're put in there with, uh, some other people. I'm not sure what the, the max is, but me, me and my friend, uh, Ben, who co-hosts the go flicks yourself podcast with me, we went and did it. And there was, uh, three other guys in there, in there with us. Uh, and so the squid game one was, uh, was pretty fun. It's not quite as intense as, you know, the real squid game might be for <laughs> obvious reasons. Um, but the, it's, it's immersive enough that like when certain things happen, you know, like it, it, it it creates a certain feeling in, in your body as if, you know, like you were actually falling or something like that. And, and there's a lot of suspense and tension built into it as well. Hmm. Um, so y- there's no danger of running into the other people in that room. Oh no, there absolutely is. But, okay. but, but, but like you, you're all in the same virtual space. So like wherever they are in relation to the real room is where they are in the virtual reality space. Oh, as I well. see. Gotcha. So like, yeah. So like, so you know where they are cause you're, you're all in this, in the same game and you can see each other's virtual avatar avatars um so the squid game one w- was cool but then we also played one that was like a basically like a, a a zombie wave attack one where you you all have your choice of different guns and you're experiencing hordes of zombies that are coming and attacking and so it's basically like being in the middle of like one of those call of duty zombie game variants mm-hmm. um and it's it's pretty cool because unlike the VR when you're like doing it in a headset, you know, in, in your house, it, it feels a little bit more immersive just because you're there with other people in the same room with you. And so you're all communicating with each other. And like, if you're getting attacked with something, you like yell to shout out for help and you have to like uh, rev- revive people if they go down and stuff like that. And so it, it gets pretty intense and it's, it's quite like a, a physical challenge too. And it was, it was a lot of fun. It's um, you know, if this is like where, VR technology is now I'm curious to see like how it evolves because it really does give you a sense of like how cool it would be to have something like the Oasis from Ready Player One as you know that technology continues to improve. Yeah, if you look at it on a, um, you know, on a spectrum, on a timeline from like, uh, I'm sure you remember the movie First Kid with oh, Sinbad. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that, that movie, like there's a big um, climactic moment that involves what the equivalent of VR was in the nineties. And it just looks, you know, obviously laughable now. Um, so I feel like we're in sort of like a midpoint between, you know, the, the comical uh, first kid style stuff. And then, yeah, like just a yeah, few back when they years. had those, the big like headsets and platforms in the middle of shopping malls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So what have you been reading recently, Brad? I've been reading a lot, actually. I've, uh, I've been getting some uh, some cool books tied to the upcoming gift guide. And there's been some cool stuff about, uh, you know, movies that we all love to talk about. And uh, you might have seen some stories on Slash from about certain things we uh, have learned from these books. And uh, the first one is Unleashing Oppenheimer, which is the the book about the making of Christopher Nolan's movie Oppenheimer. Uh, and this, this is a fantastic dive into the making of a movie. It covers uh, every facet from uh, pre-production into casting and like breaking down all of the the various characters in this big cast and talking about how they figured out how to build Los Alamos and shooting on real locations and uh, figuring out how to recreate the bomb test site and doing the practical effects that make up the what they call the the phenomena of the the quantum physics uh, that that Oppenheimer sees inside of his head mm-hmm. um, various production woes that happened while they were making the movie hurdles that they had to overcome uh, just just tons of, of fascinating anecdotes and details about the, the making of this movie so if, if you're at all 
interested in, you know, how Christopher Nolan operates as a filmmaker and how they made, you know, this movie. The, the book covers like everything about it from the beginning to its its release. So it's it's very good. Awesome. So that's called Unleashing Oppenheimer. What else? Uh, I also read uh, uh, Halloween, The Making of Halloween, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends. That's the actual title of the book, and it's a lot. I'm not sure why they didn't just go with The Making of David Gordon Green's Halloween trilogy, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so obviously this book covers the making of all three of David Gordon Green's Halloween movies. Um, I, I do wish this one was a tad bit more in depth as far as development is concerned, but uh, where this one I think um, succeeds more than some other making of books is they really dig into the nitty gritty of planning certain stunts and how they did like makeup effects and things like that to make a lot of the things look so realistic uh, and gruesome and just planning like uh, how those sequences would, would look and how they would play out. And like, there are awesome pictures in this book showing close-ups of the various prosthetics and like full body dummies they made and like just you get to see how grotesque and detailed like heads that are split open and like bodies that are all mush and you know just just all these cool little details that like you really don't get to appreciate because the kills happen so fast in the movie uh so that was really cool to hear the like the stunt people um and uh and uh jude courtney who plays michael myers and stuff like that talk about all of that so it was even though i didn't dig into as much of the development as i would have uh liked there was still some pretty a lot of cool stuff in that book okay so that's called take a deep breath here halloween the making of halloween halloween kills and halloween ends that reminds me a little bit of um did you ever read that book uh back to the future the ultimate visual history um i did yeah yeah a few years ago yeah i love that book i feel like that one is maybe a little bit more kind of what you were hoping for with this, where that book is very, very detailed in terms of like, it takes you through the entire production, like, you know, week by week, almost, I think it maybe even literally the week by week, it, it's very, very detailed. A lot of making of books are just kind of like, yeah, you know, then they shot for a month and then here's the post process and whatever. And like, they'll tell you some stories about stuff that happened on set. But this Back to the Future book, I remember just being like incredibly detailed about like, okay, they shot this scene first and then they went over and shot this scene and then this. And it's like that for the entire movie, you can really like piece the whole thing together. So anyway, just a, a quick shout out for that book. Yeah, there's a good handful of uh, books that have like the the visual history title attached to them that really dig into the making a movie in an incredible way. Those are always worth seeking out. Excellent. Uh, what else have you been checking out recently? Uh, I also checked out The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion, which is a recently released book for the movie's 30th anniversary uh, that um, takes a deep dive into the making of the movie. And there's a lot of fascinating insights from uh, Tim Burton and Henry Selick and Danny Elfman, and also uh, a lot of the the animators and art directors and various people who brought the movie to life. And uh, it's really cool to hear about this because uh, stop motion animation has come such a, a long way since Nightmare Before Christmas was made. Having a feature-length stop-motion animated movie like this was a first. Um, and it's it's a little bit easier today than it was back then. That's not to say that it's not difficult, because you're still you know shooting 24 frames a second, and it still requires an incredible level uh, of artistry, which is why there aren't a lot of stop-motion animated movies that get made. Uh, but it was even more difficult back then, because they didn't have a lot of the systems in place that they have today to make that process a little bit easier. And so hearing all of the things that they had to do in order to make it work properly and knowing that they were kind of like really relying on a lot of just like their own filmmaking prowess to, to do it rather than having the technology available that makes makes stop motion a little bit easier was really fascinating to hear. Um, and there's a lot of great 
behind the scenes anecdotes and really uh, really digs into like the tangible uh, makings of the various puppets and the, and the sets and the influences. And so if, if you're a Nightmare Before Christmas fan, it's it's like probably the best book that I've seen as far as digging into the making of the movie. Cool. So that's the Nightmare Before Christmas visual companion. And then you also read a book about the making of Airplane, the movie? Yeah, so I'm actually in the middle of this one. Uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm on, on my way. It's called uh, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane. Uh, and this one is actually written by Jim Abrahams and David and Jerry Zucker, the directors of Airplane. And it's structured as basically an oral history that jumps back and forth between uh, the making of Airplane and also how... Jim Abrahams and the Zucker brothers got together as filmmakers, chronicling like their their history, forming like an uh, an improv theater and and all this stuff, and how the movie came together. And what's great is because they wrote it themselves. The interviews are so between Zucker, the Zuckers, and Abrahams. It's very candid, and there's a lot of like really funny back and forth that really gives you the vibe of uh, what their dynamic is like together. And you can see why they're so funny and why they work so well together just because of the way they banter back and forth is is captured in a way that you don't often see in oral histories because you don't usually have the subjects together talking you know together it's like one an author interviewing people separately over a long period of time so huh. the, the book kind of has like a, a little bit more of a lively nature to it which is great for a movie like airplane because it's hilarious um and there's so many things in this book that i was not aware of about airplane and since airplane is one of those movies that hasn't been like covered extensively as far as how it was made you know it's not like star wars or marvel movies where everybody is like interested in every facet of it comedies don't often get this kind of treatment so it's really cool to hear how it all came together and just the the story of you know behind the scenes and how they convinced people like robert stack and lloyd bridges to and uh, to make a movie like this yeah Man, that sounds really entertaining. So surely you can't be serious. The true story of Airplane is what that's called. Uh, I wanted to read a quick listener email. So I think it was last week's episode of uh, The Water Cooler. I was talking with Chris about a movie that, or I'm sorry, a book that I was reading uh, or had just recently read called The Making of the African Queen. And it was written by Catherine Hepburn. And I was sort of, you know, off the top of my head, Chris and I were trying to figure out like, has, has there been uh, have there been other books about just the making of one movie written by, you know, a, the the lead actor or a lead actor of of that production? And we couldn't. Chris was saying that there was one about um, the Spider Man Turn Off the Dark uh, thing that was written by like some of the folks involved with that. Um, but it just seemed rare because I was talking about how like there are memoirs that cover you know huge swaths of people's careers, but it, it seemed rare that there was an entire book dedicated to just the making of one movie. Um, and then, so Rich uh, sent us an email that said, uh, when hearing you talk about the African Queen book, I immediately thought of Spielberg, Truffaut, and Me by Bob Balaban. I first read this when it was called The Close Encounters Diary. When the film came out, I was 10. It's a great read, highly recommended by 10-year-old and 56-year-old me. <laughs> Cheers, Rich. So uh, thank you for that, Rich. I'd never heard of that book, um, but I will definitely be uh, checking that out. And I wanted to share it with the listeners in case anybody else is interested in. Yeah, I haven't uh, heard about like that, that book either. So I, yeah, I'm going to have to check that out because that sounds really cool. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's take a break and then we'll get back into what we've been watching. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving, plus high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H E R O.co. 
All right, so let's get into what we've been watching, Brad. I watched a documentary on Netflix called Stamped from the Beginning, which is based on a book by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who's the guy who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist a few years ago. And uh, this is directed by Roger Ross Williams, who directed a film called, what is it called? Life Animated, which I think you watched and, and talked about uh, a yeah, while back. That, that is a, that, right? that's, yeah, that's a great documentary, actually. Okay, yeah, I remember you speaking very highly of that. Um, he also more recently directed um, several episodes of the Supermodels um, document, uh, documentary series that's out on Apple TV Plus right now. So this is uh, another documentary from him. And this uh, movie is based on a book that, and the, the film explores the fact that blackness and whiteness are concepts that were created and defined relatively recently, like within just a few hundred years. And those definitions were created specifically to continue to oppress black people and, and, and really justify their enslavement. And one of the key ideas in this documentary is the concept of dehumanization. And it gets into not only how a bunch of old white guys were a part of that, but it also sort of fast forwards to stereotypes that have appeared in modern media um, you know, about black folks and and pointedly asks the audience who benefits from the continued use of imagery like that? What kinds of, what kinds of, um, of ideas and systems do these images prop up? And this is one of those movies that I wish everybody in this country would watch because it's just not stuff that I was taught about in school. You know, I feel like there's the, the public school system really, really let me down when it comes to social issues in this country. And uh, I'm starting to, to feel like that was by design, Brad. Um, but anyway, uh, I feel like the world would be a much better place if people could follow and, and sort of trace these clear lines of oppression that this movie is drawing from hundreds of years ago, all the way to today. Uh I mean, it, it might be like a kind of a tough watch for people who have never read about this subject matter or uh, have never really thought about this in this way. But I hope it's an eye-opening experience for people. Um, it's called Stamped from the Beginning, and it's on Netflix. And I definitely think it, it's worth a watch. It, it incorporates like some animation and stuff in there, as well as interviews with uh, Kendi himself and a bunch of like um, female uh um, authorities on this subject matter. So uh, stamped from the, the beginning is uh, is worth watching. I would, I would say, Brad, that one movie that is not worth watching is Next Goal Wins. Oh, no. Which is, yeah, Taika Waititi's new movie. Uh, I had a chance to go to the uh, the AMC, like AMC Theaters did that secret screening, I think it was oh, last yeah. week. And it ended up being Next Goal Wins. And uh, I, I suspected that might be the case. And boy, I just sat through this completely stone-faced and did not laugh at all. And I just thought this was like a total, total miss on Taika's part. I I, I was... Um, That's a bummer. Yeah, really heartbroken because, uh, you know, Hunt for the Wilder People, like he's made several movies that I like. And I feel like culturally um, he's become... The the uh, the cool kids have turned on him a little bit. I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen this sentiment online a little bit. Like, feels like in the past couple of years, he went from being like a almost like an indie darling. I mean, even though he, he directed a Marvel movie, he was still like this sort of like fun figure to to like the film uh, the folks who pay attention to film on social media. And it seems like now he's just been like overexposed or whatever to such a degree that people are like, all right, this guy you know maybe it all comes down to his uh his appearance in free guy or something i don't really know but um anyway he, he's become 
not exactly like the the uh, reigning champ of um, <laughs> of the indie world that he once was. And so I, I was really hoping that he would be able to like deliver this movie and it would turn people's uh, opinions around because I, I generally think that he is like a uh, or generally think that he is a, a present pleasance and I really love his acting work in. Um, uh, what the hell is the show called? The pirate show on. Our funny on means death. Yes. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, this movie just feels like it came straight out of like 1991 or something and not in a good way. You know, like sometimes there are those throwback films that like give you that feeling of seeing something like, I don't know, mighty ducks or whatever. And like those movies are kind of shaggy, but like there was, there's just like a real genuine feel good quality to them. And this gives you the feeling of watching a really bad version of one of those. Um, so I was very, very bummed about this. And uh, I'm curious to, to know what you think about it, Brad, because I know you're a big comedy guy and, and a big Taika fan. So um, yeah, I, I was, I was uh, real bummed out about next goal wins, which I think comes to theaters this Friday. Yeah, I was disappointed um, to hear. I'll, I'll still have to check it out. But yeah, I, I haven't heard too many great things about it. So it's definitely worrisome. Yeah. Um, a really great movie that I watched recently is called Holiday. And it's from 1938, uh, not to be confused with The Holiday. Um, this one's just Holiday. It was directed by George Cukor, who is you know just like a sort of a legend in, in uh, old Hollywood. And this movie stars Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. And the plot is like a little convoluted. So it's about this guy who's he's like just an average guy. And he falls in love with this this girl on vacation. And when they get back to the big city, New York City, uh, he realizes that she is from this super, super rich family. And he has been working all of his life. And he's not, not a rich guy. He's a very average guy. But he wants to basically like take a few years off. He's, he's accumulated enough money that he wants to take a few years off and go see the world and like live his life instead of, you know, doing that in retirement after spending all these years, uh, you know, working and slaving away behind a desk or whatever. He wants to actually get out there and, and sort of experience life while he can and then spend the back uh, part of his life working. And um, the super rich family of this uh, of his fiance is like, what are you talking about? You should be working at all times, basically. That's like the main conflict of the movie. And even his fiance is kind of like opposed to uh, what she sees as this radical idea that he's proposing. But somebody who is not uh, opposed to it is Catherine Hepburn's character, who is uh, the fiance's sister. And so, you know, these two are very much like um, ideologically aligned and they're much more like free spirits and all of that. So it's really just an excuse to watch Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant go back and forth and uh, they do all sorts of like fun physical comedy and they have like really fun rat-a-tat dialogue back and forth. And you get the sense that like, oh, maybe these two characters are the ones who are meant to be together instead of uh, the, the, uh, uh, Cary Grant and the, the fiance. So uh, it's called Holiday. I would re definitely recommend watching this, especially if you're looking for like a great uh, outing between these two classic stars. It's really, really fun. So I watched this on, um, on a turn of classic movies and I think you can rent it for like three or four, four dollars or something somewhere. It reminded me a little bit of a movie that I talked about on this podcast before called designing woman, which um, starred Gregory Peck and Lauren Bacall. So that's another good one. Uh, if you're looking for something sort of in that same vein, how do you figure out which of these old movies you dig into? Cause like uh, you, you fairly consistently like choose older movies and some of them I've, I've never even heard of cause they're not like the bigger, you know, movies that people are always talking about. 
Yeah, so I'll go through the. I still subscribe to cable, so I have a. a um, I use a Directv Stream, and I'll just go through Turner Classic Movies. I'll just like scroll through what they have coming up for the next few days or the next week or whatever, and um, just kind of look at the the artwork and like see if I recognize you know a famous face or anything like that, and or if it sounds like a movie that I've heard of, or or it, it'll give you like a little bit of a plot summary, and then I'll have to like click into it to read the whole thing. Um, but I just do that a lot and record a bunch of stuff, and some of it is uh, <laughs> is obviously better than others but um i feel like i would turn classic movies has like a pretty decent hit rate in terms of like there, there aren't too many like out and out stinkers that i've seen on there so um yeah i would just recommend just kind of like doing that if you if you have access to that like scroll through and uh just look for actors that you like and then um once you watch you know a handful of these movies you'll, you'll start to get a sense of like oh this director is actually really good even though back then they were churning out like so many more movies than directors make now um and so you can track it by director a little bit too. So that's kind of how I've, I've been doing it recently and uh, seem to have pretty decent luck with it. Okay. Um, okay. The last thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, I watched Detroiters season one, and this seems like a Brad show if I've ever heard of it. Have you watched the show at all? I absolutely love Detroiters. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, really, really fun stuff. I mean, I, I came to this late, obviously like this was a show that uh, Tim Robinson and Sam Richardson made before they made um, the one on Netflix, which is called I Think You Should Leave, which is much more of Tim Robinson's baby and uh, is just like utterly deranged. And and Detroiters is uh, a little bit more, um, how would you say it? Like reserved, I guess. Like there's actually a continual narrative and these ca- the, the um, actors play the same characters throughout every episode. And it's not nearly like the, the sort of um, like ADD, <laughs> uh, like, you know, two minute skits or whatever you have, whatever uh, kind of format of um, I think you should leave. But the sense of humor is like kind of close. You can see almost Detroiters as being like a, um, a blueprint or something like an earlier version, like a 1.0 or something of what I think you should leave would eventually become because some of the stuff that they get into in Detroiters is like pretty over the top and like really, really heightened in a really fun way. And that that's pretty much that tone is pretty much all of what I think you should leave has become. Uh, but this one, this show is a little bit more. Um, yeah, like uh, it has its feet on the ground, I guess. Whereas uh, I think you should leave is like out in the stratosphere. So um, Detroiters, uh, both seasons of the show are streaming on Paramount Plus right now. And uh, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed watching this with my wife. We're looking for something that was just like a, you know, a short, easy, like 30 minute end of the day, kind of end of the night kind of show. And this has been uh, a really good one for us so far. The, the best way I pitch it to people that is probably the way to convince people is it's basically Mad Men meets 30 Rock. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And and these guys play, yeah, essentially like the, the worst version of Don Draper that you can imagine. <laughs> um, what do you think about the second season, Brad? Does it uh, keep a continual level of quality across the first two or yeah, across abs- both seasons? Yeah, for sure. And it was a real bummer that they didn't uh, renew it for a third season because I, I know that they would have liked to have uh, kept it going. So, yeah, it's um, it, the second season is also very, very good. Excellent. Okay, so that's on Paramount Plus if you want to check that out. What have you been watching, Brad? I uh, watched The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and and Snakes. Uh, I went to uh, a press screening earlier this week that was also combined with, it was was basically one of the IMAX fan screenings. Um, And man, Hunger Games fans are still uh, ravenous as ever. I I didn't think it was going to be like this huge thing, but man, there was a big line outside the theater and everything. 
Um, they had like a, a local Chicago radio station there, like doing giveaways before the screening. And like they, they live broadcast the red carpet from the premiere in Los Angeles. And wow. Uh, yeah. People were, were all about it. Um, and the movie is actually, is, is really good. Uh, I, um, you, you'll hear more about this when we have a, a special hunger games themed episode uh, later this week, but I wasn't super excited about seeing a hunger games prequel, especially one that was about president snow, a character that I didn't really feel like I needed to, you know, find out much more about. Yeah, um, same. But the movie is actually really well done. Uh, and it's actually like um, towards the, the the top, I think, of the, the Hunger Games movies. It's just um, there's a lot of great thematic elements to it that make the Hunger Games story continue to resonate with contemporary times as far as things that are happening in our you know society and politics and all that stuff. Uh, and it does a really good job of telling a prequel story without getting caught up in the details of like trying to provide all these winks and nods to like, Hey, you met, you remember what you like about the hunger games? Well, here's, here's some things that remind you about stuff that happened in the hunger games. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel, so you're telling me nobody just like, uh, covers themselves with bread ingredients to, to blend in <laughs> and look like they're, they're a rock or something in this one. Not, not this time, not this time. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, Rachel Ziegler and Tom Blythe are the, the two leads. Um, and they are both fantastic. Uh, they have an incredible chemistry. The the way the, the games unfold and the way their story and relationship uh, unfolds is is truly compelling. And their, uh, their performances just make it that much better. Jason Schwartzman is uh, a supporting MVP. Uh, he plays uh, a um, an ancestor of Stanley Tucci's character, one of the Flickermans. Uh, hmm. And he is equally um, as smarmy. Uh, and he's, uh, he's a little bit kind of more of a on the, the loser end, I guess you could say when, when you see him in the movie, you'll understand what I mean. And that's just because it's kind of like, it's earlier in the hunger games history. So they were still kind of figuring it out. And it's, uh, he's basically like a weatherman who is also hosting the hunger games. So, uh, <laughs> but he has, he has some of the most hilarious, uh, darkly comedic moments throughout the entire movie. And there it's, that's great. But yeah, I, uh, it's a little too long. I think it's, uh, it's just a tad over two and a half hours, which is a lot of movie, um, and you start to feel it in the back half, but it's uh, it's still a very, very good uh, prequel. And I was I was very, very impressed by it. I think it's worth seeing in theaters. Excellent. OK, so we did a big spoiler discussion about the Marvels already on this podcast. But uh, what did you think about that? I actually really liked the Marvels. Um, it is not by any means without problems. There's the, the villains not that great. There's inconsistencies in the script it's it's clear that like they cut some things and it makes for logical inconsistencies in the story and there was a lot more that they could have done and probably did do and ended up cutting and changing through reaching stuff like that but the the adventure the sci-fi aspect the tone the dynamic between Brie Larson and Tiana Paris uh, and uh, Iman Vellani uh, is just so delightful and it's it's such a fun movie and it, it digs a little bit into like the weirdness that you like about Guardians of the Galaxy uh, that I, I really enjoyed it and like I, I kind of forgive the, the shortcomings it has you know it's it's not one of the best Marvel movies ever made um, but Iman Vellani is just a, a damn delight and she really is kind of like the glue that holds the movie together I think. Um, she makes it probably a lot more fun than otherwise could have been. Uh, and feel free to check out my interview with her on Slash Film, by the way, because uh, it was wonderful to, to talk to her. She is just living her best life, and I only want the best things for her. It was so much fun to talk to her. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And I agree. This is like, yeah, squarely mid-tier enjoyable Marvel for me. So Yeah, just a, um, just a good time. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, you also had a chance to see The Little Mermaid, the 2023 version. And I'm so curious what you think about this. I, I didn't even bother watching this, Brad, because I heard so many bad things. But what did you think about it? Yeah, I finally caught up with it. And you know, I, I don't know if it's because there wasn't much hype for it for me or my expectations were so low. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Huh. Um, I I kind of appreciated how they expanded and changed uh, Ariel's story ever so slightly to make it so that she's not kind of like uh, this girl who's just looking for a boy you know um they 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 made it so that like uh she still has a significant role to play in like her own life as it unfolds even after she loses her voice because one of the things i didn't really realize about little mermaid until watching this movie and the changes they made is once she becomes a human obviously she's not talking so there's not much for her to do um and so there's a lot of focus on eric and the the driving force is oh she has to you know kiss this prince and like this is going to define her life like she's falling in love and being this this woman who finds finds a prince and so, uh what they do that's interesting and works uh in a great way is they provide inner monologue for her through song so she gets more songs besides the banger that is part of your world at the beginning hmm. of the movie before she loses her voice and the, the songs are actually really good too and they they provide a lot more for her to become uh you know interested in the world of that's above the sea they they show her experiencing the culture of where prince eric lives and experiencing things like uh like dancing and food and like and the all the people that are around and so it gives her something more than just prince eric to latch onto and something that she is craving outside of being a mermaid you know in the ocean and on top nice. of, on top of that too i actually really liked uh, the song that they gave Eric, because uh, this is something I never realized in watching the original Little Mermaid. Eric doesn't have his own song. Um, there's a song that all the the sailors and stuff sing early in the movie, but Eric does not get his own song uh, in the Little Mermaid, and they give him one, and it's it's a solid song as well. So the way they expand it uh, really impressed me. And honestly, one of the things I also uh, particularly was uh, impressed by was Melissa McCarthy as Ursula is fantastic. Uh, I was not expecting her performance to be this good. She is doing incredible things with her voice to change how she normally sounds, to be, to be villainous and uh, um, to, to call to mind Ursula without necessarily doing an impression of that original character. She, mm -hmm. she just does a fantastic job and I really liked her in this movie too. So yeah, I consider me uh, surprisingly satisfied with the, the little mermaid remake. Okay, so that's streaming on Disney Plus right now if you want to check that out. And then what else have we been watching, Brad? You got one more thing. I watched The Money Pit for the first time. Have you seen this? You know, if I did, I was like 12 years old and don't remember a single thing about it. So for all intents and purposes, no. I would suggest uh, giving it a watch because uh, it is a really fun comedy with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. That is such a perfectly 80s comedy. Um, the premise of this is Tom Hanks and Shelley Long uh, are a, a couple and they, uh, at the beginning of the movie they've been staying in Shelley Long's uh, ex ex lovers like house he's a very rich guy he's a conductor of an orchestra that she's in and uh, they get kicked out because he comes back and there's a whole bunch of people who are moving into the house in, uh, instead and so they venture out and they decide to buy a house after getting like a tip that it's a good investment to pick it up because it's, it's a bargain. Uh, and based on the title, if you haven't guessed, the house turns out to be a complete disaster. It looks nice on the outside that the old woman that owned it is, is getting rid of it. And as soon as they get it, it just starts falling apart. Nothing is working right. Like the wiring is terrible. 
the water is like this this murky muck like there's pieces falling out of the ceiling all this stuff and so they're sinking all this money uh into fixing it up and so while all this is happening there are these there's just a lot of great physical comedic gags that aren't slapstick enough to be like three stooges silly they're just really impressively choreographed physical bits like there's this great moment where tom hanks uh is outside and he gets like this uh like blanket or like like a sheet that gets covered in paint like stuck on him and he's like falling on the um the scaffolding that is set up around the house as people are trying to fix the outside of the house Mm -hmm. and just the way that they pull off this great like set piece where like all these pieces of scaffolding are falling and he's rolling down different sides of it and things are falling off the house and and it, it was all done practically and done very impressively so it's just really uh just like choreographed in such a way that it it all works in uh, in a fantastically mesmerizing fashion I, and I, I was really impressed by this and they don't make comedies like this anymore like if they did something like this today like they would do a bunch of cgi stuff and it would it would look silly but it, it was all done practically and it's just it's very cool to see a comedy like this at this time and i wish that they would remake it and not you know ruin that aspect because i think that there's a lot of potential to redo something like the money pit especially with all the obsession of with people like property brothers and chip and joanna Gaines and stuff like that mm-hmm. and, you, and you can really do a fun modern version of this but uh yeah i really enjoyed it tom hanks um is fantastic in this i love seeing tom hanks's older comedic performances when he was kind of a young rascal still um yeah. and one of my favorite parts of this movie is you get to hear that really uh, enthusiastic wheezy laugh that he has like the, the one that you know very well from Toy Story when he fakes mm-hmm. out Buzz Lightyear hearing him do that always brings me delight and you only ever hear it in these kinds of comedies um, so yeah if you if you haven't seen The Money Pit I wholly recommend checking it out because it's it's a lot of fun do you remember where you watched this uh, it's on Netflix it, or at least it was when I watched it. I don't know if it still is but I think it should be Okay, cool. So that's the money pit. Uh, what have you been eating recently, Brad? <sighs> so many things, but I can't talk about all of them because we just don't have the time, Ben. And we uh, don't. <laughs> uh, but uh, you can always see what I'm doing as far as uh, my, my snack exploits at Brad's Junk on Instagram. That's at look at Brad's Junk. Uh, I'm, I'm satisfied that it's actually been growing pretty steadily. I'm uh, getting close to 13,000 followers, so please check that out. But uh, I recently tried a couple uh, flavors of what is called Chex Mix Remix. Uh, These are Chex Mix snack varieties that have two new flavors. One of them is Cheesy Pizza, and the other one is Zesty Taco. Um, Now, I'm not normally a big fan of pizza-flavored things because they don't ever really taste like pizza. They just have, like, a vague tomato sauce flavor and maybe like a little bit of like herbs and stuff like that the only mm-hmm. the only pizza thing that i actually truly uh enjoy are the pepperoni combos those those i think are very good um and so i wasn't expecting a lot from this but the pizza flavor that ha- they have in these checks mix pieces uh was actually pretty good and it's enhanced by the fact that they have an- another checks mix piece that is garlic and herb and it's covered in like a it's not just like a dusting of seasoning it's like a almost like a buttery it's it's like if you had a savory version of muddy buddies where it was like garlic and herb butter covered instead of peanut butter and chocolate yeah and so that those pizzas in particular were very good um the zesty taco one wasn't so much for me only because the most prominent flavor is uh the salsa chex mix pieces and there are taco seasoning chex mix pizzas but they they don't shine as well as the salsa ones and i'm not a big salsa fan so the flavor just doesn't work well for me in in that format so there's a couple pieces in it that are good but the the salsa flavor is too much 
Wow, just dropping the I'm not a big salsa fan and we have to move on. I mean, sorry, I feel like I'm I could sorry. spend a whole a whole uh, bunch of time uh, interrogating that. But uh, yeah, we're, we're running low on time. So yeah, let's, let's, let's just, talk we'll, about the next we'll, we'll just leave it at the fact that soggy tomato water is not good for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Man, so many people are furious right now, Brad. Okay, go, go ahead. What's the next thing? Uh, it's the holidays. So there's some fun Christmas things uh, hitting right now. And one of the new things out there is gingerbread toast crunch which is a gingerbread variation on Cinnamon Toast Crunch, the, the beloved cereal. Um, and I, my one of my favorites on the holidays for the past few years has been Sugar Cookie Toast Crunch, uh, which is another holiday flavor they bring back at Christmas. Uh, and this isn't quite as good as that, but it's still pretty dang good. It's it's basically, it has the, the flavor of Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but the, the core cereal itself has a gingerbread uh, flavor to it. And I don't know if, it's, if they change the formula of the cereal pieces or if it's just the seasoning that they use that gives it the gingerbread flavor, but it works and it mixes. Uh, it's very good to have, to have in milk. It gives you great tasting milk afterwards, just like cinnamon toast crunch does. So uh, definitely try out some of the gingerbread toast crunch. It, it's uh, very good. Okay. You also tried Cheetos pretzels, Cheetos pretzels. Yeah. Now this is not, it's not Cheetos in the shape of a pretzel. They are actually, they are pretzels and they have been seasoned with Cheetos dust. Um, they have a rate, they have a cheddar version and they have a flaming hot version. I'm not a flaming hot person. I don't do spicy stuff very well. It's just mm-hmm. it's just my thing. So I didn't try the flaming hot version. I did try the cheddar one. My concern was that pretzels are, are usually typically so dense and dry that I wasn't sure that they'd be able to like have enough Cheetos dust to really make it worth it. Especially because these pretzels in the bag, they're not just the like the thin uh, pretzels. They're they're a little bit thicker. And so I was. So are they are they crunchy or soft? They're crunchy. They're crunchy. Okay. Um. And so they, but they they are they are seasoned with with a pretty hefty amount uh, of Cheetos dust. And I was actually very surprised how well the uh, the cheese stuck to uh, the, the pretzels and how well well flavored they were because they were they were pretty enjoyable. There's some some varying uh, sizes. Like sometimes they're a little bit thinner. Um. Other times. They're a little bit thicker, and so I don't I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just you know just however what the machine that makes the Cheetos pretzels work, whatever. Um, but they, for the most part, I really thought that they, they did a good job of providing enough of the Cheetos dust on the pretzels, and uh, without the pretzels making it too you know uh, dry of an occasion, I guess you could say. Yeah. Okay, so that's Cheetos pretzels, and then you also uh, went to Arby's and tried something fascinating. Yeah, you know, I'm a sucker for a good movie crossover tie-in at fast food chains, and wouldn't you know it, Good Burger 2 is coming out on November 22nd, uh, and I'll have an interview with the film's director and writers coming up here shortly, Uh, but of all places that is doing a Good Burger crossover tie-in, it is Arby's, the roast beef sandwich fast food chain. (laughs) Um, Arby's isn't known for their burgers, as I'm sure you're well aware, but, uh, in the past year, they have released their own Wagyu Steakhouse burger, which is actually pretty decent, all things considered. As far as fast food burgers are concerned, um, it's actually one of the better ones that I have had. So Arby's, surprisingly good at burgers. I'm not sure they would have been the first choice for doing a good burger meal, but I also wonder if maybe the profile of all of the other fast food chains as far as burgers are concerned just don't mesh well with like the style of burger that good burger 
presents, if that makes okay. sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So so there is an official Good Burger 2 meal at Arby's where you get a burger that has a, a special burger sauce on it. They don't call it Ed Sauce, which I feel like there, there's a missed opportunity there. It, sh- it should have been like, this is Ed Sauce on this burger. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty similar to like uh, the sauce that you would find on like a, a Big Mac or something like that. Um, it comes with fries and it comes with a strawberry shake because obviously strawberry shakes are very prominent in the Good Burger world. Um, and it's, you know, it, the I've had the, the burger before. The sauce did make a little bit of a difference because previously I, I hadn't had it with that sauce. And like I said, for a fast food burger, perfectly fine. It's not going to blow your mind. But, you know, if you like Good Burger and you you, you like shameless tie-ins like this, you know, why, why not give it a shot? <laughs> Okay, a, a glowing endorsement. Um, so you've you've talked about your uh, pinball. I, I, I'm going to call it an obsession recently. Uh, it's on, getting on this there. Podcast. It's getting there. And uh, it sounds like you've been you've been playing a little bit more recently. Yes, I have. Um, so my my friends arcade. Uh, they ha- they have tournaments, and so ever since I've been started playing, like I got signed up with the uh, the IFPA, which is like a, a pinball organization that tracks pros and. Uh, ranks people across the country and in states and stuff like that. And like you get points for competing in certain tournaments and placing in tournaments and that kind of thing. And so I've been playing in some tournaments recently and uh, I don't do terribly. I don't do great necessarily. Uh, I'm not usually making it uh, to the finals. It kind of depends on the tournament. Like sometimes it's flipper frenzy, which is where for a a set period of time you play head to head in uh, as many times as you can. And like your win loss record is what determines whether you make it into the finals and then like you play head to head with the rest of the people. Uh, and that can be a lot of fun. And then there's stuff like pin bowling where like you have a certain score you have to hit. And depending on what score you get is dependent on like what score you would get if you were like doing a frame of bowling, like whether, oh, it's, yeah. you know, a 10 or a nine or an eight. Um, and so the, there's, it's cool stuff like that. And so uh, there was a pinball tournament last week that I participated in. It was a, a flipper frenzy tournament. Um, and I was doing pretty decently. I had a decent record. I made it into the finals didn't really think I had much of a hope of doing well because the other three people, one of them is a like legit insane pinball pro. Uh, his, his three letter call sign for pinball is ACE. He is just a pinball dynamo. His name is all over every fucking pinball machine in that arcade. <laughs> uh, and like, it's, it's, it's nuts. He has the highest score all over on pretty much every machine. He's just, he's incredible. I've never beaten him before. I always get my ass kicked by him. Uh, but on, on this occasion, uh, in the finals, he was the first one I played. We played on the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory pinball machine, which is a pretty fun <laughs> pinball machine. And uh, I was worried because to, uh, after the second ball, he was he had just gotten into the two million range. It seemed like he was going to win. I was still stuck down in the hundred thousands. Uh, and I was, I basically kind of resigned to like, OK, well, I'm going to lose this one. But I got on my third ball and on the Willy Wonka pinball machine, there is a uh, a cumulative multi-ball aspect of the game where if you hit the ball into a certain area, it puts it in the Wonka Vader. And like any multi-ball scenario, if you get three up there, you activate the Wonka Vader multi-ball. And so since that carries over, you know, it, it, somebody could have already gotten two in there. And then if you get the third one, you get to reap the benefits. That's exactly what happened. Ace got two in there. I got the third one. I activated the Wonka Vader multi-ball. Uh, I started getting crazy points off of that. And then in that 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 third ball that I had while I had that, 
I also activated three more multi-balls, the Slugworth multi-ball, the Kid multi-ball, and the Everlasting Gobstopper multi-ball. And so <laughs> my score was going insane. There, at one point, I had like eight balls going in this machine. And what, God. And while you're doing that, there's no real strategy except just keep hitting the balls. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so, like I'm just hitting there, slapping the buttons, and every now and then you hear jackpot, jackpot, and activating all this stuff. And my score got up to six million, and I, I actually beat Ace. So I was like, "Fuck yeah!" I got only got third in the tournament, but I was just satisfied to finally beat Ace. <laughs> that is awesome, man. I mean, like it kind of sounds insane, Brad, when you're describing all this stuff. Like I got the Gobstopper multi ball. Like it just <laughs> sounds totally deranged. It is, but uh, I'm sure, like in the moment, it must have been like heated and fully intense. So uh, congratulations on beating a professional. That's amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and inside the show notes for this episode, I will link specifically to Brad's Amon Vellani interview, which is, as he said, a true delight. Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you could find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.